Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. And as we turn to your word now, uh, we pray that you would help us to guard our steps and that we would listen diligently to what you have to say to us. And even as we've just sung in this hymn, we pray that you would grant us grace to read and mark your holy word and to live uh, in light of its truth, to live by its holy precepts and to receive with meekness all of its truth. Our Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Well, it would be great if you could have those first seven verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 open in front of you, please. I hope that you're enjoying from this in this truly incredible book of the Bible, Ecclesiastes. And in this book, we've been seeing that the teacher is teaching us all about life under the sun, as he describes it. That is, he's teaching us about life here on earth in this fallen creation. And he's showing us time and time again that if we want to try and find lasting fulfillment and true joy and ultimate satisfaction in something here on earth, then we are going to be bitterly disappointed. Because that kind of lasting fulfillment is simply not in the things of this world. This is a world where things come and go. It's a world where people come and go. It's a world where nothing really lasts. A world where nothing truly satisfies. It's a world where our highest experiences and even our deepest relationships slip through our fingers. And futility is always at hand. Trying to find ultimate fulfillment here on earth in this fallen creation is like striving after the wind, says the teacher. And the teacher has demonstrated this to us in a number of different ways so far in the book, hasn't he? He's shown us the futility of trying to find fulfillment in being wise or in indulging ourselves in pleasure or in having a successful career or in making it our ambition to be powerful or to be prosperous or to be prominent in the world. If you live your life worshipping those things, and you think that those things can save you and those things can satisfy you, then you are going to be bitterly disappointed because all those things will slip through your fingers and they will all let you down sooner or later. And yet the teacher knows that there is a chance that some people will have got to the end of chapter 4 in his book and they will be patting themselves on the back. They will be saying to themselves, I thank God that I'm not like other people. 
I thank God that I'm not like those foolish people out in the world who worship pleasure or who worship money or who worship prestige. After all, here I am in church on a Sunday morning. Here I am worshiping God. Uh, So surely I'm okay. Surely I have escaped from this foolish, futile vanity. But the start of chapter 5 stops us in our tracks if we're thinking that way, doesn't it? And the teacher is saying to us here, just because you worship God, don't become complacent. Just because you're in church, don't think that everything is automatically okay. Because you can be at church every week, but even in your worship of God, you can still be living a life of futility and foolishness. And you see, this little bit of the book is written especially with people like us in mind. People who go to church. People who decide that they're going to turn away from worshipping those things that other people worship. Pleasure or money or a career. And they're going to worship God instead. And the teacher says to us at the start of chapter 5, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And of course in his day, going to the house of God meant going to the temple. Whereas in our day, the house of God is not a building. No, in our day, the house of God is a people. It's the church. And what the teacher wants us to understand is that when we gather together to worship God, along with God's people, that is the most significant and the most momentous event in your week. Regardless of whatever else is going on in your life at that time, whatever exams you have, whatever deadlines you need to meet at work, whatever life events you've got scheduled, the most important thing in your whole week is that time when the God of heaven issues his command for you to gather together with his people and to worship him. And because that is so significant, the way that we worship God is therefore vitally important. It's not just like nipping to the supermarket or dropping in with friends for a a quick catch-up. It's not a casual thing. No, it takes thoughtful spiritual preparation. You need to guard your steps as you come to worship God, says the teacher. And so it's worth asking yourself, isn't it? What am I doing? Or what can I do to guard my steps when I come to worship God? When I gather with God's people to worship him, what frame of mind am I in? What is the posture of my heart? How am I handling the Lord's day so that it is free from any unnecessary distractions and as much as possible I'm free to rest from my work 
and to focus my heart on worshipping God in the gathering of his people? How am I guarding my steps as I come to the household of God, which is the church? Well, in the passage we're looking at this morning, the teacher wants to set before us two main principles that we can apply in order to guard our steps when we come to worship God. And as we shall see, they're both to do with the topic of words. Verses 1 to 3 are about how we should listen to God. And then verses 4 to 7 are about how we should speak to God. Because there is this two-way dynamic to corporate worship. In some parts of the service, God is speaking to us through his word. The call to worship, the words of encouragement, the reading of scripture, the preaching of the word, the benediction. In all these elements, God is speaking to us through his word. And then there are other parts of the service where we are speaking to God. The prayers that we pray, the hymns and the psalms and the songs that we sing. If we're going to guard our steps in worship, we need to know these two things, don't we? We need to know how to listen to God and we need to know how to speak to God. So here's the first principle. Be slow to speak and quick to listen. Be slow to speak and quick to listen. We live in a culture that is very quick to speak, don't we? We live in the age of the instant message, the live tweet, the social media update and so forth. And within just a few seconds, you can type something onto your mobile phone. And it can be read by people literally all over the world, just a few seconds later. And you see, the technology that we carry around with us in our pockets is designed to encourage us and to enable us to be quick to speak. Quick to have our say on whatever issue. Quick to leave our thoughts in the box. Quick to offer our opinion on something, whatever that opinion may be. Quick to throw in our two penneth. And it gives the impression, doesn't it, that whoever we are and whatever we have to say, it is something worth hearing. So don't stop and think. Just go ahead. Just say it. Blurt it out. Type it in. Be quick to speak. And what the teacher wants us to understand is that we can fall into this trap of bringing this quick to speak attitude into our worship of God. And before we've given God the chance to speak to us, just blurting out whatever is in our head. And when we come to worship with this quick to speak attitude, it is a recipe for disaster, says the teacher. And if I can say this reverently, God doesn't get a word in edgeways. The teacher says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. If that is our approach, this quick-to-speak approach, then the teacher says our worship degenerates into what he describes as the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they are doing evil. In other words, he says it just descends into mindless worship. And they're just making it up as they go along. There's no thoughtfulness. There's no reflection in it. When they come to worship God, they're quick to speak. They're quick to speak. 
Uh, they're just saying the first thing that comes into their head. One commentator describes it as verbal doodling, which I think is a good way of putting it. And they don't even realize that what they're doing is actually evil. One commentator writes, the whole verse refers to those who perform the rituals of worship without any deliberate intention to bring the whole self before God in an attitude of reverence and awe. The sacrifice of fools is thus careless observance of religion, unattached to any genuinely Godward movement of the soul and enacted out of custom, peer pressure or habit. And notice that verse 3 and then also verse 7, they both compare this free-flowing, foolish speech to dreams. That is, like dreams, they are detached from reality, the reality of who God really is. Like dreams, they are incoherent. There's no real substance to them. They're just cobbled together out of whatever happens to be swilling around in our mind at that particular moment. And they're ultimately futile. The teacher says those who are quick to speak before God just end up offering him the sacrifice of fools. And instead, the teacher tells us that when we come to worship God, we should be slow to speak and quick to listen. He writes, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. So here's the key difference. Whereas the sacrifice of fools begins with man speaking, true worship always begins with God speaking and man listening. Let me say that again. True worship always begins with God speaking and with man listening. And there's a very good and a very simple reason why in worship God's word must sit in the driving seat. And the second half of verse 2 tells us, for God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. In other words, we need to remember that God is God and we are not. And therefore, what he says has to come first. Before we try and worship God, we need to keep our big mouths shut and listen to him first. I do hope that's the impression you get as you come to our worship services here, that when we gather to worship God, his word is in the driving seat. And it does make perfect sense, doesn't it, this principle? If our chief aim in worship is to please God, not to excite ourselves, not to amuse ourselves, not to go through some therapeutic experience for ourselves. Now, if our chief aim in worship is to please God himself, if he is the focus and the aim of our worship, then we must know what God requires of us in that worship. And to know what God requires of us in worship, we must therefore, first of all, listen to what he has said to us. David Gibson puts it like this. The ear is the Christian's primary sense organ. Listening to what God has said is our main spiritual discipline. 
And so as we come to worship God, we should be listening to God's word first and foremost. And considering what does God's word have to say about who God is. And what God is like. And what God has done for us through Jesus. What does God's word say about what true worship is? And about what true obedience looks like? What are we to believe concerning God? What duty does God require of man? And you see, only by listening, first of all, to the word of God, can we know any of those things. So here's the first principle. If you want to guard your steps when you come to worship God, the teacher says, be slow to speak and quick to listen. Listen to God's word first. And then you can really worship him properly. And I just love the way that Psalm 40 describes this dynamic of listening first and foremost, in order to worship and obey God. We've sung this psalm already earlier on in our service, but listen to the words of verse 6 in particular. David writes, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Literally in the Hebrew it says, Ears you have dug for me. It's put very graphically, isn't it? David is saying God is not interested merely in people just making sacrifices and and offerings to him. Just going through the motions, just doing these religious things, quickly muttering a few meandering prayers, mumbling through a few hymns and not really thinking about it. That is just the, the sacrifice of fools, isn't it? It's not true worship. David says in this psalm, God has dug ears for me. David is saying those two little holes on either side of your head, God put them there. Why did he put them there? Well, of course, part of the reason is so that you can enjoy listening to birds singing and you can enjoy beautiful music and you can engage in two-way conversations. And yet, first and foremost, God gave you ears. God dug those little holes in the side of your head so that you can listen to his word. And having heard his word, you can then live a life of true worship before him. That's what Psalm 40 verses 6 and following are saying. And if you know the New Testament well, you know that that verse is picked up by the writer to the Hebrews. And he applies it first and foremost to Jesus himself. And he's saying that Jesus is the truest worshipper of all. Jesus guarded his steps, not by just offering some sacrifices to his father without really thinking about it. No, Jesus guarded his steps by listening to the word of God. And then having heard the word of God, living in perfect obedience to it, a life of true worship and full obedience. And if Jesus himself needed to listen to the word of God in order to worship his father properly, do we need to do that? When you come to worship God, guard your step. Slow to speak and quick to listen to God's word. That's the first principle and it leads naturally, doesn't it, to the second. Because we're not to remain silent forever. 
Remember what the teacher said back in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 7. It applies to worship as well, doesn't it? There is a time to keep silence and a time to speak. So once we've kept silent and we have listened to the word of God and the time then comes for us to speak in worship, how should we do that? Well, the second principle is this. When you speak, fear God. When you speak, fear God. And that's verses 4 to 7. And the teacher starts by talking about making vows before God. It was a very common part of Old Testament worship. A person might make a certain promise to God. A promise that they would consecrate something to God. Maybe that they would sacrifice a, a certain animal or they would set aside a certain sum of money as a, a free will offering. Or maybe they, they would do some act of thankfulness before God. They would thank him for the way in which he had answered a prayer or the way that he had blessed them or provided for them in a, a certain way. And the temptation was always there for a worshipper at a later date to try and avoid having to keep that vow that they had made. So verse 6, when the messenger, that's probably a priest, comes from the temple and reminds this person that they've made this vow before God, but they haven't yet come good on what they promised. They haven't yet brought that sacrifice or given that donation or rendered that act of service. Or the person might just say to them, well, that vow was a bit of a mistake, in all honesty. I didn't really mean what I said. I, I said it, but I didn't really think. And so I, I want to cancel that now, or at least can I defer payment until a later date? You can imagine that kind of thing happening, can't you? Someone goes to the temple one day and, and they say, God, if, if you bless our harvest this year, I'll bring a double sacrifice to you. And God, in his kindness and mercy, does bless their harvest. And then very quickly, the worshipper forgets all about that vow that they had made. And deep down, they had no real intention of paying what they vowed. And the teacher shows us how utterly wrong it is to speak to God in that way. To say things to him that you don't really mean. And things that you have no intention of keeping. The teacher describes this kind of speech, notice, as displeasing to God, foolish, sinful, and deserving of judgment. They would have been far better off not making that vow at all than making it and then going back on it. So the teacher says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Now you probably think, well, I get the point that the teacher is making here, but it doesn't feel very relevant to us today. We don't tend to make vows like this much anymore. But I want you to see that there is a principle here which certainly does apply to us. Now you may or may not have entered into a vow before God. And yet, ask yourself, what promises have you made before God? 
What have you said to him? What have you promised to him? If you're a Christian, then you've made promises, haven't you, that you would live your life trusting in Jesus and walking in obedience to what he has said. In coming to Christ, you have said that you would deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. If you're a church member, you've committed yourself to this particular body of believers. You've committed yourself to worshipping alongside us, serving with us, giving as God enables you to do so, praying faithfully for this church, submitting to its leadership, sharing fellowship with this congregation. As your minister, I made promises when I was ordained and installed here just over five years ago that I would fulfill this ministry as best I can by God's grace. If you're married, you've entered into another set of promises before God to be faithful to your spouse so long as you both shall live. And maybe there are other promises that you have made to God and, and only you know about them. Maybe you've promised that you would pray for a particular situation or that you would witness to a certain person or that you would serve in a, a certain way. And of course, every time we pray a prayer and every time we sing a hymn, we're saying things to God. Uh, we're pledging our allegiance to him in a certain way. It's worth pausing and asking ourselves, isn't it? In my Christian life, what have I said to God? What have I promised him? Even in the past week, what have I prayed? And you see, the, the temptation that we face is exactly what the teacher is speaking about here, isn't it? Our temptation, our temptation is that we just say those things without really meaning them. And then at a later date, we, we try and get out, what we, get out of what we have said. I know I'm a, a Christian, but I, do I really need to obey Jesus in this situation that I'm in? I know that I'm a church member, but do I really need to cultivate fellowship with that person? I know I'm a husband, but do I really need to be faithful to my wife? I know I'm a minister, but do I really need to pray for everyone in the congregation? I know I've got these gifts, but, but do I really need to use them in serving? I know I'm, only the, I'm the only Christian that such and such a person might know, but do I really need to witness to them? It is so tempting, isn't it, to say things to God in prayer and in praise and not really mean them. And then when the rubber hits the road, to go back on what we have said. What will guard our steps when it comes to the way that we speak to God? Well, verse 7 tells us, doesn't it? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. And you see, what will stop us from saying things to God which we don't really mean and which we have no intention of keeping is the right fear of God. When we fear God rightly, we speak to him rightly and we stick to what we have said. Now you might ask, well, what do we mean by the fear of God? It's a phrase that people struggle with, isn't it? It doesn't mean that we're frightened of him. 
Well, it means that we revere him as God. This is how someone has helpfully described it. Christians need not fear God because they fear eternal punishment. Christ has taken that fear away. We need not fear God because we fear he will go back on his promises or will in the end not accept us. Christians fear God in the first place because we recognize that the radiance of his infinite, eternal and majestic character would, simply by its majesty, stamp us out of existence. We fear God because we know that if we were to see him in all his glory, we would be no more. And then we approach him with reverence and awe because we know that such an approach fearfully acknowledges the one who is in his condescension revealed to us but who also infinitely, eternally and unchangeably continues to shine with a brightness that no human could endure. God is to be feared because of who he is in the fullness of his majestic being. As one of the Puritans put it more succinctly, godly fear does not arise from a perception of God as hazardous, but glorious. And you see, it is when we have this right sense of who God is, that he is the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God of glory and majesty, that we speak to him in the right way, not with empty promises, but with reverence and with awe. This, says the teacher, is how you guard your steps when you go to the house of God, when you come to worship him. The teacher says, be slow to speak. Be quick to listen to God's word. And then having heard God's word, speak to God out of reverence and awe and fear. Let's speak to God now in prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father, we acknowledge that you are in heaven and we are on earth. You are the eternal, unchangeable God, the holy and majestic and glorious one. And we are mere creatures. And so we stand in reverent awe of you. May our words be few. And we confess that so often we are too quick to speak before you. And we confess that our worship has at times been haphazard and unthinking. And we've offered to you the sacrifice of fools. And so help us instead first to listen to your word and to hear who you are and what you have done for us in Christ and what you require of us. And then when we come to speak to you in our prayers and in our singing, give us that right reverent fear of you so that we will not utter empty words before you. Fill us with reverence and awe before you. Help us to be faithful to all that we have promised to you. And in all these ways, help us to guard our steps as we come to worship you. We ask these things in Jesus' strong name. Amen.